Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And for those, no doubt, millions of you who were waiting for the podcast to arrive in your box or phone or whatever on Monday night or Tuesday morning when it normally arrives, well, there has been a delay this week. I thought I would delay it to watch the parliamentary Brexit drama unfold in order to cast light on what will happen as a result. What a complete waste of time that was in terms of casting light. I have to say, I spoke to a very senior cabinet minister on the evening of the first night of votes in the House of Commons, these Brexit votes. And this minister, who is a sharp reader of the political rhythms, I said to him, can you see how this ends, this Brexit saga ends. And without hesitation, he said to me, there are a potential 100 different endings. This Brexit drama, for those who are fed up with it and bored with it, it's it, it's actually a thriller. It's like a Netflix box set where no one knows the ending, including all the leading players. However, having said all of that, it is always worth watching parliamentary debates. They are the most overlooked part of the whole political repertoire of outlets, you know, BBC programmes, Sky, News 24. Quite often you learn a lot from Parliament. The first thing I think I'm now sure of is that whatever the shenanigans, the intrigues, the rival assertions of strength over a meaningful vote on the Brexit deal, I can exclusively reveal to all podcast subscribers, the meaningful vote will be meaningful. Imagine if Theresa May, after a summer and early autumn of frantic negotiations, comes to the House of Commons with the deal, the most important proposition to put to the House of Commons probably since 1945. She will have staked huge amounts on getting this deal. If she loses, the idea that this is meaningless is farcical. And the idea, incidentally, also that Theresa May, if she loses the vote, can just stand up and say, thank you very much for defeating me on this uh, minor matter. It was, of course, a meaningful vote, which was largely meaningless. And I now pursue the only option available to me, I will take the UK out of the EU with no deal at all, because you've turned down my deal. Thank you, I'll go off and negotiate that. It's not going to happen like that. If she loses this vote, it will be as devastating for her as Cameron losing the referendum vote. A Prime Minister who cannot win the support of the House of Commons on this historic uh, set of propositions is in deep, probably fatal trouble. So if the vote is lost, although Brexit hardliners want to keep open the option of therefore there being no deal, that won't happen. There is no majority in the House of Commons for no deal. And the House of Commons, having asserted its strength in relation to the deal, would do so again. I think no deal as an option is almost impossible. And a defeat on the Brexit deal opens up all kinds of options. 
from an extended timescale of the negotiation to a second referendum on the grounds that the House of Commons has reached a kind of paralysis and only the people can decide this. The people might be somewhat reluctant to be asked, but that is an option in that context. So, of course, it's meaningful. Conversely, if Theresa May wins the vote on the deal, that too will be hugely meaningful. It means Britain is leaving the European Union. And even though the deal then, I suspect, will still be pretty vague, and that membership of the customs union will have no deadline to it because there will be no answer by October or November to the Irish question, and for quite a lot of other reasons too. But it means Britain will leave. And if Britain leaves, it will be very, very difficult to get back in. And all talk about referendums and everything go out of the window. The Brexit drama will carry on for years to come. This is not one Netflix box set, but many. But if that vote is won, which on the basis of the votes this week, remember, for all the furore and drama, the government won all of them, is the more likely scenario, in my view. Britain then at that point heads towards the exit door, albeit with huge amounts still to be resolved. So, you know, forget about this, all these shenanigans. A meaningful vote will be meaningful. It will not be a Monty Python vote. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a totally meaningless vote on one of the most important issues to be debated in the House of Commons since 1945. So it looks, whatever happens, that the UK will be in the customs union or a customs union for some time to come. Most MPs back a customs union, and there will be another amendment coming up in July from Ken Clark and Anna Subri, which is more explicitly about continued membership of a customs union. Theresa May, although quite a hardliner on many issues at the beginning of all this nightmare, has always sort of can't quite leave the customs union. She's always been a bit flirtatious on the customs union front. In her first big speech on Brexit at Lancaster House in January last year, she spoke of an associate membership with the customs union. And I'm, I'm an associate membership member of a tennis club, and it kind of means that you can never book a court. But nonetheless, you can see she couldn't quite break away. So one way or another, if this deal is passed, I suspect the UK will be part of a customs union for some time to come. The focus in the media was on the big Labour revolt in relation to the single market, but that of course obscures the much bigger picture. There is no majority in the Commons at the moment for staying in the single market. Both front benches are against. So it looks as if, if this kind of deal happens, we leave the single market. Though what happens as an alternative to those arrangements, still nobody knows, which is a bizarre, alarming situation with so little time to go. We know Labour is split on this issue, but it is easier to be split on Brexit in some respects than it is um, in opposition than when you're in government. You know, the, the Labour have always been split on Europe, but sometimes it's been hidden. There was a huge revolt led by Roy Jenkins on the vote to join the common market when Labour were in opposition in the early 1970s. And yet Labour 
still won the next election, albeit only just in February 1974. You might be hearing my phone. I'm getting texts saying, all this is rubbish. I'm being monitored. Anyway, so Labour is split on the single market issue, but I have no doubt will largely unite to vote against the final deal. So will all the other major opposition parties. So it'll be over to those pro-European conservatives. But I suspect that those pro-European conservatives, in the end, many, many twists and turns before then, will back the deal. What else have we learned from the last few days? I think Theresa May is in a more precarious position than I had assumed. I always work on the assumption that for all the feverish speculation, prime ministers tend to survive. There was endless speculation about the fragility of Tony Blair. He went on for years. When in 1968, Harold Wilson had to say, because there were sort of moves against him, you may be wondering what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. I'm going on. And he went on for another eight years, winning two more elections, losing an election and winning a referendum. So prime ministers tend to hang on. And there are many reasons why Theresa May will probably hang on, in that if they changed the prime minister, got in Donald Trump to negotiate Brexit or whatever mad fantasy fuels some of them, none of the external circumstances change. That a prime minister is negotiating Brexit with a divided party, a divided cabinet, a hung parliament, and an EU determined to protect the rules and values that govern it. And that nightmare would face a new Prime Minister, as it does Theresa May. She is opaque, but she has no choice but to be opaque. If she offered clarity, all hell would break loose in her cabinet and beyond. So I have some sympathy for her current position. However, the background internal discontent is getting louder. Ministers complain of that opaque approach, seeing it as indecisiveness and a near calamitous lack of clarity about the way ahead. They complain that she isn't strategic, can't think more than getting through the next hour. Although, again, who can entirely blame her when each hour produces another nightmarish challenge? And of course, objectively, Uh, Leadership is an art form, partly, and Theresa May, this is me really observing, I haven't heard ministers say this so much, Theresa May has no artistry. The leaders with artistry can make a difficult situation almost disappear through language and demeanour. I remember in the build-up to the 1997 election when Tony Blair was Labour leader, he tormented John Major over the cabinet divisions about a single currency and John Major's own apparent indecisiveness about where he stood in relation to a single currency. You know, Prime Minister's questions, he would say, I I stand with the Chancellor. Where do you stand, all right? You know, you with the rest of your cabinet or with your Chancellor? And Major looked pale. You saw him age 50 years. But the twist is that Tony Blair was in precisely the same position as John Major. He was equivocal about the single currency, half tempted to go for it, half wary of doing so, wondering about internal tensions, uh, especially with Gordon Brown. Yet 
through artistry, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way at all, it's a part of leadership, it's ammunition, it's necessary. He gave the impression that he had a sense of purpose and mission in relation to Europe compared to the puny, pathetic prime minister being bashed around by his party. And he said famously, I lead my party, you follow yours. And yet, actually, both of them were navigating tentatively the muddy terrain of the single currency. But Theresa May hasn't got that part of the repertoire of leadership skills, the artistry, to try and make sense of her position, to give the public and indeed the media, where she still has some supporters, the impression of conviction and purpose driving her approach to Europe, even if in reality expediency and desperation and the desire to get through the next day is really guiding it. She conveys too much of that when actually through language and explanation and appearing at ease on the public stage at every in all its manifestations, she could give a different impression. So maybe she will fall during this period. Certainly some cabinet ministers are at the end of their tether with her. I still wouldn't bet on it. I still think it's much more likely that she will take the UK through this period, if take is the right verb. But I wonder for the first time whether that might not be the case. And there is some trauma so big in the months to come, the white paper the cabinet's got to agree on, the votes on a customs union in July, and then the intense negotiation with the European Union, the toughest bit of all, there might be moments where she reaches a kind of new level of fragility. We've learnt a bit about Scotland, I think, this week, the walkout of the SMP MPs at Westminster during Prime Minister's questions was a crude device But the fact that they used it and they wouldn't have done so without getting permission of Nicola Sturgeon, she has to be consulted on everything they do, reveals the degree to which Nicola Sturgeon and others are still resolved to use Brexit as a means of refueling interest in independence and a second referendum. Now, everyone has noted that the polls suggest there is no momentum in her favour, Sturgeon's favour at the moment, but that might change. And she is determined to give it a go, I think, to use every device available to try and generate renewed interest. Now, obviously, she will not call for a second referendum in precise terms unless she knows she can win it. And she hasn't got that ammunition yet. But I think the noise around Scotland in relation to Brexit and the broader question of independence is going to get louder over the next few months. So it's going to be a heck of a summer. Those Commons votes in July, the negotiation begins with the EU in a way that words can't paper over the cracks any longer. And when that starts happening, the dramas so far will look like a kind of tea party in comparison with what is about to happen. 
And then she will have to return Theresa May to the Commons to sell whatever she's got, uh, which is where I came in. There will be a meaningful vote. There won't be a Monty Python sitcom where she announces this next vote will be entirely meaningless. This will be a silly vote of no consequence. There will be a moment of consequence. So we might as well all relax and just watch the World Cup, a form of glorious escapism. I always hope England will get um, knocked out early on because the frenzy and hysteria in the build-up is uh, the, the joy when they get knocked out and all the pundits then have to analyse why English football is in such a state of crisis compared to other countries. It's, it's just fantastic. Although this time the hype hasn't been so Great. So I wonder whether England might do a bit better. In you know, I'm, I'm no doubt the hype will grow to the opening game and so on. But I just kind of think that it's not as intense as usual, which suggests that it could all be a bit calmer and England perform better. But I still hope they get knocked out at the earliest possible stage because I just love the analysis afterwards, the fuming, furious analysis of why we're so useless after the hype about, uh, you know, the new, calm, mature build-up to this World Cup compared with the others. I also think, you know, I was talking about Jeremy Thorpe in last week's podcasts and starting to feel nostalgic about the 1970s. I'll tell you the joy for those of you who weren't around watching World Cups in the 1970s were not the game so much as the panels. I loved the panels. I always say when I do that Sunday politics panel on BBC One, look, this is the closest I get to being on a World Cup panel. And the panels in the 70s were just in a different class to the current ones. I used to sometimes not watch the games, but always get there for the panel beforehand and half time and at the end and then do something else during the matches. And I miss the likes of Brian Clough so much. There's a wonderful program on BBC iPlayer at the moment about Scotland in the 1978 World Cup. Talk about hype. There was a real sense that they might win this World Cup. Completely irrational sense of hope and expectation that, as ever with British clubs, uh, were dashed in hilarious, darkly hilarious circumstances. But I remember Brian Clough saying during the hysteria in advance, he was one of the ITV panellists in 78, uh, saying that he didn't think Scotland were anywhere near as good as the hype suggested. And he said it with that sort of provocative, mischievous kind of tone. Uh, which was so magnetic and compelling. And, and Keegan was a great panellist in that era. We've got Noah Cliver and Big Mal, Malcolm Allison. They all had kind of charisma oozing out of them and were provocative and funny and dangerous. And I, I can't get excited by the panel, so I hope the games are good. Anyway, there's plenty of other things to divert us during the sort of Brexit traumas. The Politics Festival is on King's Place the weekend after this one. Actually, that won't divert us from Brexit. We've got some very big names, and they'll no doubt be focusing on Brexit, from John Major to Chukarumana to cabinet ministers like Jeremy Hunt and Liz Truss to Emily Thornbury, the shadow foreign secretary. Uh, Ed Miliband will be performing his award-winning podcast live at the festival. So will Ian Dale and Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary. So anyway, you can get tickets for that on the King's Place website. It will be a great 
weekend of politics. And then I'm at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, you can get tickets there on the Edinburgh Fringe website, Rock and Roll Politics 2018. Different show each day where in this Brexit era, the audience will take control and the pathetic, powerless performer has to respond to the demands of the audience, the dynamic that we are becoming used to in this turbulent era. Thanks very much for listening. I won't talk about Brexit next time. We'll find something else. But it is genuinely important and a compelling drama. But I'm going to, we'll find something else. And it will be back at the normal time, late Monday, early Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Do subscribe. And see you next week. <laughs>